Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the politics of strikes. And you ask us, is Nigel Farage coming back? And then stick around for an extra chat with our tech editor, Oscar Williams, about the world of hacking and digital espionage, especially when it comes to British politicians' phone numbers. And remember, if you want to submit a question for You Ask Us, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash You Ask Us. We're recording this morning on the first day of the nurses' strike, and this is sort of one of two major issues preoccupying Rishi Sunak this week. So we're going to talk about strikes in the first half of the podcast and then get to the asylum policy that he's unveiling uh, in the second half. What's interesting is that Labour have been having a tricky time with this. West Streeting had a fallout with the doctors' union, the BMA, and Keir Starmer is obviously trying to draw this quite fragile line on it, but he, he went for it at PMQs. He was quite confident in, in attacking Sunak on the NHS strikes. What, what's going on there? Is, there? is is there an increased confidence or is there a bit of turmoil behind the scenes, Rachel? When you think about it logically, I think the government wants to make this a, a wedge issue. They want to make these the Labour Party's strikes and they want to make Keir Starmer responsible for them. And just sometimes attack is the best form of defence, isn't it? So I think that's why Keir Starmer was really willing to go for it and go for it and go for it again. I think Starmer's kind of helped by the fact that Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the RCN, the Nurses' Union, kind of said that she would be willing to pause the strikes just if the government would intervene. And then he was helped again by the fact that the Scottish government had kind of intervened over and above their independent peer review board. So it kind of left Rishi Sunak a little bit cornered, really. So it was just the right time for Keir Starmer to land that particular attack, I think. I don't know if it's one that they'd want to go on all of the time, but it was certainly an opportune moment for him. Well, I suppose for the NHS stuff, it's a sort of easier one to go on. We've spoken about this on the podcast before, so we won't dwell on it too long in this conversation. But in terms of public sympathy, 46% of people blame the government for the nurses and paramedic strikes, just 17% blame the unions. But there's a bit of a contrast here with public attitudes towards the rail strikes. And Ben Walker's written a recent piece that everyone should go and read on State of the Nation. He's written, while support for the nurses walking out is overwhelming, for train drivers and university staff, it's much more of a minority viewpoint. Railway support staff have the sympathy of a little under half the country and the support of just 40% of it. So, Freddie, you picked up on a bit of a dent in Mick Lynch's who, who is the head of the uh, rail union, and in his confidence this week. Do you think that is because public attitudes are changing? 
I think he had a quite a strange interview round on Tuesday, I think it was, where he wouldn't answer questions as directly as he normally does. His interviews are always quite testy and that's why people have really warmed to him over the summer because he's such a great communicator. But the, the question that he was asked was, how much are strikers not being paid by not going to work and being on strike? Because obviously strikers aren't paid when they go on strike. I don't think people always recognise that. So it's very hard for workers to decide to go on strike because especially in a cost of living crisis lead up to Christmas they've got even less money than they had before so I think he didn't want to address that but potentially because there may be a shift as you say Anush away from support for the strikers but I think he had a tricky media round I'm not sure we could read too much into it but the broader point definitely is that striking is quite tricky and the key thing for the unions is keeping support for the strikes within their members I was on the picket line with the CWU on Tuesday, speaking to some of the strikers there, the postal workers, and they were just saying how hard it is. One of them had been in the same office for 40 years, and he's seen it change so much. He's the work become much more onerous. They were expecting so much more of them. And he wasn't being paid the lead up to Christmas, and he was really feeling that. So the union leaders have to make sure that they recognise the the strife that the workers go through and that's, they do that all the time. But it's not always recognised that that's such a key factor in the negotiations as well. Yes, because actually the point was made that even though there is majority support for going on strike among the rail workers still, that percentage has dropped, hasn't it? And I think that's what really sort of touched a nerve during that interview round that he did. Yeah, completely. And then it also relates to the negotiations as well because... When the union leaders are in there with the uh, rail companies or the government or whoever it is, you need to know that they can sustain strikes for as long as they need because that's always been the strategy that you have indefinite strikes and you go hard and you go early so that the government or the employer gives into your demands early on. So if you don't have that backing behind you, it can get quite tricky and you lose a lot of leverage. Because mm, it is all about momentum. I was just interviewing a academic who's been on strike for a while and actually the university staff have been striking for a long time with very little attention paid to them, maybe because you know the majority of us don't really in- interact with higher education in the same way that we do with the NHS or trains, for example. And she was saying the most important thing was momentum. And actually they were all really struck by how the rail workers have been sticking it out, despite perhaps the public starting to get a bit pissed off, despite the fact that they're not getting their wages in the build-up to Christmas. And she was saying, you know, for us, that's the most important thing because they're demonstrating their resilience and their perseverance to the public, which which gives other people who are on strike more of inspiration to carry on. You know, it affects the way that they vote in their strike ballots. Yeah, and there's a collective atmosphere as well. I remember interviewing Mick Lynch over the summer, interviewed Dave Ward on Tuesday, who's the General Secretary of the CWU, and both of them said that this is a moment for industrial relations overall across the nation. They wanted to see this as a moment for workers to strike a better deal at work collectively. So hence, it's really important that you see each individual strike in context, both for the unions, but also for the government as well. If you've created a situation where we have a winter of chaos, it reflects badly on the government, even if for, say, the rail workers or others, there is a disparity in how the public sees them. Yes. And actually, Rachel, you mentioned Pat Cullen. She made the point um, on the eve of the nurses' strike today to remind patients they're striking for them, you know, for their sake and for the future of the NHS, as well as for their own financial purposes. And that's something we discussed on a recent episode of the podcast, Rachel. Do you think that That means that these strikes will carry on and carry on because obviously the state of our public services isn't getting any better. The government probably has the most questions to answer on it if the 
nurses are offering at any time to pause the strikes or to or to have some kind of solution. I think in normal times, right, that we'd have the independent peer review board and the economic picture would be reasonable. We wouldn't have something like 10, what's current weight of inflation is like 10%, isn't mm. it? This has been an extraordinary year and it and there's probably quite a strong argument for the government to intervene when it can because of just those extraordinary circumstances. So I think it's a really difficult place for Rishi Sunak to be in. And I, and I think that is an argument that the public accept at the moment in that they can look at workers kind of really struggling and think, I understand why they're going on strike and I I support them as far as it goes. But we're in a situation where, because we're in such extraordinary circumstances, we don't know when that public support's going to run out, do we? When mm. It's kind of really hard to predict. I think no one can kind of put their finger on the button and say exactly when sympathy would start to wane. Yeah, it's interesting that Jake Berry came out yesterday saying that the government should increase their offer. I mean, Jake Berry's been a thorn in Rishi Sunak's side since he went into office, so it's not necessarily surprising, but it does speak to the fact that Sunak is weaker. And if there is a sea change in Parliament, particularly on the Conservative backbench, that'd be very tricky for Sunak. Yeah, and and also you do have that example from Scotland as well. You know, sometimes with these kind of things, I mean, thinking back to the pandemic as well, where Nicola Sturgeon would maybe move faster than the sort of government in Westminster would on coronavirus measures, you do get the impression that perhaps Scotland going in with this deal, like you say, directly, not through a, a public pay review body, Going in with this deal and sort of averting the strikes or at least making the RCN go back and consult with their members on on a different deal. I can imagine the sort of it's inevitable that the Westminster government would have to follow that at some point. I mean, obviously, it depends on where public sympathy goes. But for the nurses in particular, does it does that just mean that it's inevitable that Rishi Sunak is going to have to do what Starmer was pushing him to do, which was go and sit down and have a conversation about pay, which is what Pat Cullen has said they haven't done so far? One of the interesting points that has often kind of persuaded a lot of Conservative Party backbenchers that they should tr- try and push back on on rising public sector pay is that private sector pay was always never rising as fast. Uh, that's currently not the situation. The, the opposite dynamic is true. So I think it's it's harder for Conservative backbenchers to defend a failure to try and get this sorted out, really. Yeah, and that's a point that I make in the myth buster about strikes that we put out this week that listeners should have a look at if they haven't haven't already. But yeah, private sector pay is rising at 7%, whereas public sector just 2%, which means that even if you put pay up, I mean, putting pay up in the public sector won't lead to inflation in the same way that it would in the private sector anyway, because there's not a sort of cost to using public services that would go up if they had to pay for higher pay packets. But it also means it won't benchmark pay above private sector pay, which would cause sort of other industries in the private sector to to increase their prices, which would potentially lead to higher inflation. So that argument has sort of been completely scotched, even though you do still hear it from government ministers. Yeah, and it's interesting because... The inflation argument is the key narrative the government is trying to create and explain their position. But they don't make it all the time. They don't really talk about it. Their main thing in the <laughs> Commons or and on the media round is often trying to blame Labour, which I don't think works. So one of the big problems is that CNET doesn't have a a justification that's generally understandable but also communicated in an effective way. I mean, what is he trying to achieve with this? Is he trying to reduce inflation? Okay, well, why does he always blame Labour for the strikes? Then there isn't a coherent message on it. And then more broadly as well, I mean, I, I wrote a piece on Tuesday about how Sunak's had quite a, uh, a tricky start to his premiership and he hasn't taken the opportunity to set out what he wants to do 
beyond mopping up the mess of his predecessor, which means that he can't say, look, we're in a really tricky position at the moment, but this is what we're going towards. And in, if you have that narrative, I mean, look at the, the coalition years, there was a, a narrative that, well, yeah, we're going to go through austerity, but we're, there's a reason we're doing that. It's to balance the books and protect public finances. He's not making these arguments in, in such a coherent and consistent way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, we've got the looming prospects of further strikes, you know, among doctors, among teachers next year. So this issue isn't going to go away for him. So perhaps they do have to find another narrative other than Labour's in the pockets of these people who are disrupting your your lives every day. But of course, that also means that things get trickier for Labour too. And we've and I mentioned it at the beginning, we should probably talk about that a bit too. You know, Wes Streeting having this confrontation with the BMA. Rachel, what's going on there? <laughs> it's kind of it's a little bit reminiscent of Tony Blair versus the 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 BMA way back in like 1999, you know, when he was kind of taking them on over their opposition to using private sector cash to build hospitals. So West Streeting's whole point is that if the Labour Party is prepared to put money into the health service, there are parts of the health service, including doctors who will need to accept some reforms that improve things for patients. Things have really come to a head over the booking system. The doctors don't want any changes to the booking system, which Labour says would improve would improve patients' experience of the of the health service. But the sort of interesting politics behind it is that there's this whole attack by the government which says these are all Labour strikes, but this is kind of the Labour Party taking on a union specifically mm. and being accused in the Telegraph of going to war with health unions, which might not be the best sort of headline for someone like West Streeting who would potentially like to be a future leader of the Labour Party <laughs> if he would like to sort of get unions to back his campaign. But... You know, I think there's probably a lot of members of the public that might look at that and kind of find it quite surprising to come from a Labour front venture. I suppose if you're a Labour strategist and you're trying to find a positive in this, you would think at least it, it marks Labour or the Labour Party out as a separate entity from the unions, which is something I've noticed Starmer is always trying to do, even when he, he was sort of asking Sunak questions on behalf of the nurses or PMQs yesterday. He was still trying to make sure that Labour is just a completely separate entity, not at the negotiating table, nothing to do with this. It's all a result of the government's failure. And I think in voters' minds, perhaps particularly older generations who might associate with the Labour Party with unions and striking, perhaps that's you know a particularly important distinction to make, even if the majority of the public are on the side of the nurses' union, for example, at the moment. Everyone really was really angry with Starmer, weren't they, when he said he didn't want his front benches to go on picket lines. Mm. But I think sort of most Labour strategists will probably look at this period when the level of support is kind of now being brought into question by some people and the, the government's sort of attacking the opposition over it. I think it's that most would probably at this point accept that that was probably the right judgment. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that you're seeing a similar message come from the unions. When I interviewed uh, Dave Ward on Tuesday, he was very critical of Labour and said they need to decide whether they're with working people or not. And Mick Lynch has been coming out with a similar message over the summer and into the winter now. And what you're seeing, I think, is that the unions are saying we have to take responsibility for striking a new deal for our members and not rely on the Labour Party. So both the party leadership and the union leadership seem to be going their separate ways. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. 
If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. And our question this episode is... Is Nigel Farage coming back? I mean, rumours of Farage coming back to frontline politics come round every few months. I actually looked this up when we got this question and the last time was the end of November, so literally monthly. Um, (laughs) But it is an important question because there was a story in The Times a few days ago about Tory MPs fearing Farage's return, particularly in the Red Wall. So YouGov had done some polling and found that Reform UK, which is the successor party to the Brexit party, was on 8%. So that's just one point behind the Lib Dems and ahead of the Greens and the SNP. And 17% of voters who backed the Tories in 2019 would switch their vote to reform next time if there was an election tomorrow. So better polling for reform than we've seen recently. And Farage is the honorary president of that party, but doesn't really play an active role in it. And I think it's interesting, actually, because Reform UK are just quite a strange party. I interviewed Richard Tice, who was the leader last year, and he was really down on fighting the culture wars, which you'd think would be the opposite of a party associated with Nigel Farage. So his main line to me was, culture wars, they piss me off, but, you know, they don't pay the bills. That's not what people are voting on. still seems to believe this. I mean, he's got a strange sort of hodgepodge of these kind of reforming radical policies, scrapping inheritance tax, which is sort of more of a right wing thing, but then having an elected House of Lords, which might be more associated with the left, scrapping net zero, taking six million people out of income tax. So it's just it's just a sort of strange platform that doesn't necessarily act as a dog whistle for anything, which you might expect from that party. So which must be the reason why the return of Farage in a more influential role, whether it's a leadership role or otherwise, would scare Conservative candidates in those seats, you know, what we used to call UKIP seats, more than perhaps Richard Tice's leadership would. What do you think? I think, yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the actual policies of the Reform Party, because I do think there is a bit of continuity between them and UKIP. I remember looking at UKIP's 2015 manifesto the other day, and there is quite a a Thatcherite economic policy there. And that didn't matter too much because the key thing for UKIP was immigration and it was making suggestive comments and policies uh, about culture and a nostalgic politics. And that was the key thing that drove their vote in 2015 and through the noughties as well. So I'm not sure they need to fight on the economic front necessarily. Having said that, it's worked in the past. I'm not sure that will work now because obviously immigration is completely overshadowed by the cost of living crisis and the economy is political issues in a much greater way than they have been in the past 20 years. Is a party that is 
only being able to connect with voters through immigration and through a more nostalgic politics, able to effectively communicate how they'd address the cost of living crisis. It seems like they're not going to do that. And you've seen Farage over the past two years or so try and find a new issue. I mean, you know, Brexit, the EU was his issue for 20 years or so. When that left, you saw him resign from the party and sort of search in the wilderness for something to do. I remember, I think it was January last year, he posted on Twitter a video saying China is the next big thing. This is my big focus now. So he tried to make that into an issue for a while. And then obviously we had the rise of the channel crossings. Yep. And then that became his issue. And he has had some success. Don't forget the net zero referendum Oh, as God, well. yeah, sorry. I missed that one. <laughs> so there has been quite a few. And he has done a, a good job of drawing attention to the channel crossings. I think you've seen papers listen to Farage a little bit. You've also seen Tory MPs, I think, influenced by it slightly. Uh, but the, these issues would have been addressed anyway. So I think there's... Obviously, he's a very charismatic politician and he connects to voters in a way that few others do. But if you look at the policy issues which are dominant in politics at the moment, it's hard to see how they immediately slot in. Yeah. But Rachel, there is a fear among Tory strategists and MPs of the rise of a party or a successful or perhaps yet more charismatically led party to the right of the Conservatives that could affect some of their seats in the next election, isn't there? It was also just the same in 2019 when they were the Brexit party. That was pulling aside a number of votes. Just thinking about when you look at Nigel Farage, like, is he a net positive? Is him moving to the Reform Party just in and of itself a, a, a positive thing for the Reform Party. I think on balance, most people would kind of think that he's more divisive than he is a draw now. I don't necessarily think him going to the party would change the party's fortunes, which is probably why he's got this ridiculous title of honorary president and he's not and he's not the leader and they're putting Richard Tice out there. I don't, I don't think it would necessarily change it for them. I don't think it would make it more successful other than in, in a small number of and for a small number of seats where Farage has a particular following. But I think I think Reform's better judgment is to stick with somebody like Tice who doesn't have that same kind of toxicity attached to him as Nigel Farage does. I think I would slightly disagree with that in part just because Farage is such a great uh, name recognition. That's one of Tice's uh, main problems at the moment is that many people don't know who he is, whereas Farage doesn't have that problem. And as soon as he re-enters the fray, you're going to get uh, lots of the right-wing press and others getting really excited about him being there and he's going to get even more attention. So I think he would bring something that would make people talk about the party, and as we're doing right now. Yes, I suppose he would be more likely to be booked for interviews than Tice. That's true. But I think I do think it does go beyond leader, though, because what's interesting is the Reform Party is saying this time they're standing a candidate in every seat. This is something that Tice actually told me last year, but it's getting more attention now that they're saying it now. They're going to stand a candidate in every seat. They're not going to stand aside for the Conservatives in any. And remember, the Brexit Party stood aside for the Conservatives in over 300 seats last time around and in the Batley and Spen by-election, you know, they really tried to calculate where a sort of Brexit candidate would have more of a likelihood of coming in if they stood aside and they did that. They don't want to do that this time because they feel a bit betrayed by the way that the Conservative Party has been run. Richard Tice has this phrase, he calls them the con-socialists mm. and he keeps trying to make it yeah. catch on. <laughs> but it's not catching on. I, I read an interview with him recently where he was like, my phrase is really starting to catch on. It's like, That's no. Not. But, but it, you know, it does, <laughs> it does give you an indication of sort of where they're coming from in terms of how they feel about Tory economic policy in particular, raising taxes and things. But I think that's probably the idea of not having these candidates stand aside for them is probably what's rattling Tory candidates with slim majorities in UKP 
uh, seats around the Red Wall more than perhaps the prospect of whoever's leader. Yeah, and there are rumours in Westminster of Tory MPs always talking to reform, that sort of yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> a constant state of affairs. But, I mean, if you look at the despair among Tory MPs at the moment and the fact that they're not really that loyal to the party, it increases the possibility. Yeah, but I was just going to say that the Conservatives have so many other problems to worry about at the moment. They have the Green Party taking their votes, they have the Lib Dems taking their votes, and then they have you know, the main opposition taking their votes, which is always the position that a party's in when it's kind of likely to be on the way out. Everyone's having a bite out of them. Yeah, yeah, and there was that poll recently that showed that they would just have 69 seats if people voted the way they told Savanta they would. Yeah, and I think this is part of the reason why Tory MPs have been so excited about Rishi Sunak's migration plan this week. And the, in the chamber on Tuesday, they were all congratulating the Prime Minister. And I think they felt that he had delivered on a key promise from over the summer. Having said that, in the next sentence, they would always pressure the Prime Minister to ensure that he stood up to the judiciary lawyers or whoever would inevitably challenge this bill, which we are expecting to come in the new year. Now, please don't go away because it's time for a bonus section of this podcast episode. This week, we're delving into the fascinating world of hacking and digital espionage with our tech editor, Oscar Williams, who's never been on the New Statesman podcast before. So I'm delighted that he's here for his debut and our sponsors, Fortinet. Now, Oscar, you've been reporting on this for some time now. It's always been an interesting subject, but it seems to have really cut through into the mainstream news agenda this year. Why is that? Thanks thanks for having me, Anoush. Like so many issues facing the UK at the moment, this is linked at least in part to what's been happening in Ukraine. Even before the invasion back in February, GCHQ revealed that its analysts had seen an uptick in the level of malicious cyber activity in and around the country. And given the sort of hybrid nature of Russian warfare, Russia's history with Ukraine and the pattern of attacks that were playing out at the time, GCHQ was concerned that this cyber activity might have served as a pretext to a full-blown invasion. And that if it did, that invasion would be coupled with further, more destructive cyber attacks, which would spill over and hit Western organisations. So we all know that they did accurately predict the invasion, which others were saying wasn't actually going to happen and that was a bluff, if I remember rightly, at the time. But did the cyber threat play out too? It has, perhaps not quite as dramatically as some had initially feared. And that's partly a reflection of just how well Ukraine has defended itself in the cyber realm, but also a reflection of the fact that once a war is actually underway, inevitably conventional weaponry is still largely more effective than cyber warfare. And clearly in this incident, it has taken precedence. Having said that, there are some cyber attacks which have spilled over and affected people beyond Ukraine's borders. And perhaps the best example is a strike on the Viasat satellite network, which took place on the first day of the invasion and has been widely attributed to Russia. It appears to have been designed to target Ukraine's military satellite access, but it also happened to take down broadband connections in a number of countries across Europe too. So it's that fear of Russian attacks spilling over into the West or intentionally targeting the West, which means lots of businesses are on red alert at the moment and that whenever an attack does take place, we see it perhaps gets a little bit more attention than it would have done otherwise. There have been a number of examples of this over the last few months, but perhaps the one that will be most familiar to listeners is the breach of Liz Truss's phone, which emerged a few weeks ago but happened back when she was Foreign Secretary. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking to Chris Parker, Director of Government Strategy at our sponsors, Fortinet, a leading provider of cybersecurity solutions and services, about this exact subject. And I began by asking Chris why it so often seems to be very senior politicians and business leaders who fall prey to these kinds of attacks. 
I mean, everyone's got this problem, whether you're an ordinary person in the street or a very senior person, as we've seen. And I think, as you mentioned, cyber hygiene is really important. But I think there's a reality here where the criminal activity that's going on, or worse, as in terms of the threat, identifies that that people who are very busy, let's put it that way, are sometimes unable to think and concentrate on what the main risk and threat is. There's a term in the industry for this, because we've all heard of phishing, but that's where people are trying to get me to click on something. But if I'm a very senior person and I'm really rushing around and I'm trying to get urgent briefs for an urgent call or something, targeting those senior people is called whaling, in other words, big fish. And that's a very prevalent piece and that's been used in quite a lot of case studies which we'll mostly be aware of and we can all Google on the internet. But it is a real concern and it's therefore something that I think psychology-wise, as a nation, we've got to all now realise that there's no harm in reminding each other even if the person you're reminding is quite senior, Mm. that they need to really think about their cyber hygiene. When you see those whaling attacks, as you described them, playing out, do you have any insight into how long it might take to set up in the first place? Yeah, well, some of them can take years, literally, where people have done that. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the global phenomenon of now this complexity and threat. And so people are trying to engineer threats. And we don't use that term lightly. It actually means that not just some technical person with a hood on, which is what sort of everyone's thought that someone's doing that from some bed sit somewhere. That's not actually the case. People are really thinking through how can they can target. And if you think about why that is, Um, We should just think about it the same. I always say to people, everyone lives in a house, or normally they do, or some sort of dwelling, and how do we secure that? And if you just think about that as an analogy, we would always make sure that we put the optimum security bearing in mind the threat around us. So we have to think in the same ways. And I think senior people, um, and as we've discussed, people with more information, that just has to have more attention from the organisation or family. Can you give us a sense of how the war in Ukraine has changed the cyber threat landscape? both for businesses and governments this year? Absolutely. I think we've all seen the global situation has focused a lot of attention, but also a lot of awareness onto the cyber threat. And the threat landscape is definitely more more complex than ever before. We've seen and been warned by various military commentators and others for years that cyber is an increasingly important domain in a military operation But actually, it's always going on night and day in all the civilian operations as well, of course. So I think it's just awareness has risen. But one one thing that has struck me is this ability of having ransomware, malware as a service, these sort of abilities to have that sort of complexity, almost professionalism, let's call it professionalism of cybercrime. And that means we have to be super professional. And again, it comes back to my analogy of a house. If you know there's some really expert people who are able to break into houses very cleverly, then you need to buy some better locks and some better security systems. It's the same applies in cyber. So that complexity of threat is a concern, and it's something that has been focused by the current global situation for sure. We've all been aware in the industry of the alarming rise of the, again, let's use that word, professionalization of the threat, because it's something that we need to deal with and always stay ahead of in the industry. And we do, so we've had to up our game, and there's no doubt that there's some amazing people in our organization and many others across the world who are daily conducting operations against this threat. And it's a a fascinating career for those young people out there who are interested in gaming and other stuff, electronics, to get into, because it's really live. But I think 
the this global situation hasn't really exacerbated that in the same way as it was always there. What it's done is it's made a lot of people aware of it. And I think we've always been aware of what's called advanced persistent threats, which is the sort of term we use in the industry for very complex, very highly professional and often long enduring in timeline attacks. These are things that are now going to be part of the threat landscape every day, Mm -hmm. which says that we've all got to focus, again, back to the house knowledge and having the best security you can. We can probably suspect that that in my view, there'll be testing and there'll be people out testing and probing and trying. And again, the industry is ready for that and we're responding and making sure that we're aware of that. For example, if we see something highly complex on what is an odd target, that normally correlates to being something that perhaps could be someone doing a dry run in the same way as we see it with, again, back to skewing a building or a house analogy, someone driving by and hanging around and having a look. And that's actually what happens in these attacks. And these are well documented. There's some outstanding work for people who are interested to get free email feeds on this from the FortiGuard Labs experts on the, on the web and just Google it and you can sign up. And a lot of people find that quite interesting because it's very educative about how clever back to the professionalism piece that these people are when they're doing their attacks. Could you share a couple of predictions for how the sort of threat landscape and cybersecurity world is going to change next year? There's definitely a concern, and again, fortunately, I published three prime ones for next year, but I think a couple from my perspective, bearing in mind what I see as specific to perhaps the UK, is that a big increase in automated threat, the use of AI and automated machineries for people to electronically automate threats. And the example of that is the response time and the attack prevalence has to, by its very nature, from what we're seeing in scale of some of these attacks, be automated. So what does that mean? Again, it means that you've got to make sure you overmatch that target. You've got to secure by design, as we say. And NCSC in the UK have been outstanding in pushing many things on what is probably, I still think, the best website on the planet for people to go and have a cup of tea and look at it. Whether you're in organizational family mode, it's a really good website and they do a great job for us. But they can't do it all. It's down to us to secure our places. And secure by design means that you don't think about security too late in your process. So if people are expanding, changing shape, which in businesses and organizations we do, get that security in there from the beginning and think about it as a factor in your design. And again, if you design a building without thinking about your doors and windows and security, then don't be surprised if the doors don't fit properly and there's a few leaks and, or even worse, that they can be opened easily. So there, there's a simple message there. So to match that automation, that advanced threat, I think is one prediction I've got. And the need really is to make sure you've got really good security advice, really good automated security. So you match automated threat with automated security. And I'm delighted and proud of the very technical people in our company who make sure that we're always ahead of that curve. I think the second prediction I would say is actually for our country is really we've got to just look at operational technology and the risk against what people listening might not be aware is basically there's two forms there's IT and OT so information technology and operational technology and the latter is basically things that automatically do things it could be utilities water systems buildings smart meters smart highway systems and all those other things that we now see as part of digitization in our country those are a risk and we have to make sure that again as part of the costings resourcing and the design that the risk against those systems is matched by a really well thought through security plan at the same time. So those are my two predictions. Just one follow-up question to that. So we we saw in the budget that some departmental budgets across Whitehall are going to be cut over the coming months. Are you worried at all about the risk of budget cuts on and the effect that that might have on cybersecurity? Or do you think we've got to a place where there is sufficient knowledge of the significance of it within government to 
to ensure that it doesn't get deprioritized when budgets are, are drawn back. Yeah, it's a tough time, isn't it, at the moment for everybody. And the industry, I think, has risen to that as well. I think that we all know NCSC and the government strategy put it as defenders one. It's a team effort. And I know that we at Fortinet are doing our part of that to try and help. So, for example, where um, government departments and others are having needing new people to be skilled up, we're giving away free training at the moment to give a million people free training in the next five years, which is great. But there's also clever things that are happening which are probably less aware to the public. And I think there's things like the sustainability approach. So a lot of uh, our processes, for example, use a load less power than others, and therefore that's going to make the CFOs and finance directors happier people. And I think that sort of element to make sure we're matching our overall goals, which of course is cost savings, which is in a financially tight market, a very good thing. But the last part really is also the automation. As automation comes in, a bit like when we think about the automation of the car manufacturing industry in the 70s, 80s, that also is now applying to now where automation will mean that analysis of threats and dealing with threats is happening instantaneously by clever machines. Mm rather than needing 70 people. We'll still very much need the human element, but I think as that this financial choppy water continues, then I think we'll find that the ability to sail through them will be led by, in cybersecurity, more automated response and automated threat management, which is, again, something that I personally find fascinating, but it's also really good for the country. Thanks so much for that, Oscar, and for letting us in on your conversation with Chris. It was really fascinating. And if you'd like to read more of Spotlight's cybersecurity coverage, you can find exclusive reporting and in-depth analysis at newstatesman.com forward slash spotlight forward slash cybersecurity. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Freddie Haywood, Rachel Wearmouth, and Oscar Williams. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.